2: Jody Vanson for Mike this week. It's time to connect with our good friend, former Vancouver city councilor. He's a political commentary uh, columnist, as well as podcaster on unspun podcast at theorca.ca. George Affleck joining us on the line. Hey, George. Hey, Jerry. Uh, I saw a tweet roll by by you and, uh, you and I have spoken so often about city budgets at at Vancouver City Hall, in particular, um, and how transparency is is really required, and 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 really focusing on priorities and managing dollars in real time, in a realistic fashion. You uh, put forth, a retweeted a tweet uh, from the Globe and Mail article written by uh, Francis Bula regarding the hundreds of millions of developer contributions that the city of Vancouver, ha- having relied on for so many years to pay for housing, parks, and childcare centres, has really dried up. And you you uh-huh. had kind of a poignant yeah. note on that. So can you break that down for our listeners so everybody understands what, what this is about?
1: Well, and I feel like this isn't a bit of the uh, I told you so factor, which I never like to do, but uh, the city of Vancouver uh, has been addicted, I've always stated when I was in office especially, to this revenue that they got from developers into the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for several years. But now it's dried up to pretty much like $20 this year. So it's almost gone down to virtually nothing. And uh, that's a real challenge because uh, they rely on that money for a lot of their planning that uh, they're going to be doing. Uh, for all their capital projects so um, it's, it's 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 a real problem for the city in order to achieve its goals and and now they can't because the money's not coming in like like they thought it would
2: right so the fees the levels of layer of cost associated with developing in Vancouver have been so significant sometimes a deterrent to creating affordable housing right
1: yeah there's two kinds of uh, funds that you get from development one is uh, community amenity contribution which traditionally is what to pay for improving our parks building building community centers uh, doing these sort of capital projects that the city is responsible for, uh, then development cost levies that you got from developers paid for things like sewage and water pipes and all that kind of stuff—the basics on right. the ground sort of stuff when you build out. So the development cost levies uh, come—it's a mathematical equation, whereas the community amenity contribution, the CAC is negotiated quite often. There are some flat-rate ones, but it's negotiated. And so it puts the city, I always feel, in 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 and is the only one that really does this negotiation. Other cities have a flat-rate structure. It puts this, uh, I feel, staff into in, in complicated relationships with developers. And, and developers have said that they feel like they're being taken advantage of. It. And, and now uh, what uh, Francis Buell is stating is that they said, you know what, enough is enough. We're, no, we're, we're going to renegotiate what you give us. We're not going to build our buildings. Uh, no matter what they are, uh, and so uh, we're they're basically paralyzing development in a lot of ways, but perhaps for good reason. But then the other thing that you see happening is major projects, uh, including housing, that we're we're going to be based using this you know, the CACs uh, won't be happening as well. And an addition of housing to the CAC system was brought forward by Vision and and took that money away from building community centres and moved it to housing and you can have a debate about whether that's a good idea or not. But one major project that you won't see happening is the viaducts coming down. The viaducts in Vancouver relied on hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in CACs in order for that to happen. That's not happening now. I would say you can assume that the, the viaducts won't be coming down in the, in, the, in the near future. There was a plan for them to be dismantled in the next two years, uh, and thats I can't see that happening. And so the city is out of cash, uh, their revenue down, and their CACs are disappearing, and they're in real trouble to achieve the goals that they want to achieve.
2: Can you explain to the layman, the taxpayer, who is just saying, how is it that when costs are rising and everything is humming along and it's let's raise that price let's raise that price uh, no problem with doing that and yet in this example where builders are saying the city is continuing to ask for the same levels of contribution as it was getting in 2018 we're in a very different boat here uh and then when city planners, the head city planner in Gil Kelly said that the city just has to find a way to pay for growth and the city can't function without uh, these fees being at the levels that th- that are being asked for.
1: The way it used to work was you would get a certain amount of uh, amenity contributions from the developers, but you wouldn't rely on them. Uh, right. Places like Burn- Burnaby, for example, saved all their CACs and as a result have no fiscal problems like Vancouver has because they set it aside. They didn't spend all their money. They saved it for a rainy day. We are now in a rainy day uh, uh, more than ever before. Uh, and unfortunately, Vancouver, which is something I argued when I was in office, that we needed to save money, save the CACs for that rainy day because this money won't ha- keep coming in forever. And to assume it will be was, was fiscally irresponsible of the Vision Controlled Council for 10 years. And so now we're in a situation where we have a new council who has no money to use to build anything, which means they either have to borrow the money, which, of course, comes with interest, and, and how do you pay that? And that comes paying down debt and all those things. Uh, but historically, that's how we did it. We would say, okay, uh, here's our project for the next four years. It's going to cost $150 million a year or whatever. Now the budget's like they're saying $400 million a year, of, you know, it compared to 150 when I was there. Uh, it's just not sustainable, nor is it possible uh, because there's, it was built on the assumption that we would be getting hundreds and millions of dollars in contributions from developers and that has stopped. So any of those projects that you, that this council is talking about that they want to do won't be happening. There's just no money. There's no money to do it. It's not coming in. So therefore anything that they want to do, including housing can't possibly happen because they don't have the cash.
2: What a massive concern this is when housing is at such crisis levels, mid pandemic, it is just astounding that we find ourselves uh, in this sort of stalemate with development as well as out of cash to do the things that are urgently, urgently needed. Where do we start to fix this, George?
1: Well, and, and I always argue that the amenity contribution shouldn't have gone towards specifically housing or building housing. The city of Vancouver should not be in the business of building housing. What they can be in is the business of real estate. Uh, yeah. Owning property, so if they wanted to be a part of that process of housing, what they what we should have done over those ten years is, with that money that was coming in, was purchasing purchasing strategic land in the city that then could be worked uh, out with the province and the federal government to develop social, truly affordable housing, social housing, co-op housing, that kind of stuff, much like what we have along South Falls Creek, which is all city land. It was all developed in the 70s. It was all done that city land, and then they worked with their partners federally and provincially and privately to build almost all that housing you see on the south side of False Creek. Uh, so there is a way that city can get involved in housing, but it's usually related to land, not building housing. We're not good at building housing. We're not we don't have the business savvy to understand how to how to build housing. Uh, and it's not the responsibility of the city. So they took all that money, they started putting it towards building housing. We haven't had a community centre fixed or built in over 10 years in Vancouver. We, you can see our parks are a mess. Uh, yes. We're not using the money in the way we should be. And we didn't save any. And we didn't even invest any in stuff that we could have then used. Uh, so it's a real concern uh, that the city has put themselves in this situation. And I, certainly when I was there, I was very vocal about this. So I said, this is not the way it will always be. Don't assume that this year is going to be a normal year forever. It's going to be what it's going to be like. Uh, yet the, the 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 party in power at that time, Vision Vancouver, was assuming, and staff were assuming that this this cash cow of CACs would continue forever. And I, and I always argued that that was irresponsible, and that addiction to uh, to this cash, this money rolling in from developers, was was not the way you plan a city. And and, and as a result, and here we are today with this new council now restricted in what they can actually do. Even the basics now can't even be done. You can't get you know there's going to be so many things that are really cut because they're in such dire straits.
2: How do we even begin to climb out of this hole, though? What's what's a tangible that we can do in the right direction here?
1: Well, the only thing they can really do is, I think, is cut some of the red tape, speed up the process, make it easier for us to build things in the city. That's what the big complaint of developers is: is the red tape that they have to go through. The cost is one thing. So there's this dichotomy of having to. You can build more if you if you cut some of the costs, but then you of course cut your revenue as a city. So. But if you build more, you uh, get more tax. And, and, you know, you, there's, there's, there has yeah. to be a new equation that the city comes up with. But absolutely, 100%, first and foremost, is speed at which the, the people, developers, any kind of developer, whether it be social housing or private development, they all face the same challenges, it is the speed and the cost of building something in Vancouver it is overwhelmingly complicated and, and challenging. And therefore, they don't do it. And they're now they're putting their foot down, small and big developers, developers are saying to the city of Vancouver, enough is enough. We need your support, not your uh, negotiation about giving you more money. And again, this isn't just about big developers. I know people no. always look at these giant developments. But these are small you know, developers doing fourplexes, duplexes. They're saying, we can't do it. The math doesn't add up. Whether okay. it's a rental or, or a strata, it doesn't matter. It's just not happening. And uh, we're in a situation where we're just not building the kind of housing and the speed at which we need it. Uh, And it's very frustrating for anybody.
2: And those extra costs and fees are certainly just passed on to the renter or homeowner that will be occupying that space. It is just, we got to get out of our own way is what I'm hearing from you, George. So thank you for doing this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. It is time to connect with contributor John Jang on Strathcona Park. What have you learned?
0: Uh, Good morning, Jody. You know, it seems with uh, every passing day, the call for definitive action and the closure of Strathcona Park, the homeless camp, it grows louder and louder by the residents of that area. And truthfully, it's hard to blame them, right? You have young parents who feel the safety of their children and families are at risk. Uh, Violent incidents have led to an increased police presence. And more recently, I'm sure you know, Strathcona residents have declared a tax resistance until the city and the province can find that solution. But the question remains, what is the right solution that will not only remove the homeless camp, but address the core issue for a permanent fix? So on that note, I spoke with Janice Abbott. She's the CEO of the Atira Women's Resource Society and an outspoken community leader about this particular topic. And she believes providing necessary resources to the homeless would be a crucial step forward.
3: I think, the, you know, the challenge obviously is, um, is that people are homeless. So how do we uh, ensure that that, um, people who are homeless are safe and um, have adequate support and services in a a time when there is no housing available? Um, I think uh, some kind of a sanctioned camp is the best way forward um, in a location that makes sense. I don't know necessarily what that location is. Um, But I think in a location that makes sense, where there is adequate uh, support for the folks living in tents, at least until we have um, affordable, appropriate and safe housing for everybody.
0: In response to Strathcona residents threatening a tax revolt, Abbott says while she can understand their frustrations, she'd ideally like to see those residents advocating for a true solution.
3: For sure, but also um, placing our anger and frustration at the right Places um, and to me, the right places are um, again uh, advocating for things like a safe supply, decriminalization, um, enough adequate safe and affordable housing, and making the long-term changes that won't just move this problem from neighborhood to neighborhood. And and I'm you know I said problem, and I want to take that back because these are people. Um, they 're not a problem they're they're real people with um, with families and friends and communities um, but moving people from location to location without solving the root problems is uh, not is not a, a long term solution and so we'll have you know we'll move from having the residents of Strathcona frustrated and upset to having the residents of you know i don 't know Kitsilano or Grandview Woodland upset. We need need to be focused on and advocating for and directing our anger in the right places. And, And like I say, to me, that's a safe supply. It's decriminalization and it's supporting a right to housing.
0: As a resident who lives close to Oppenheimer Park, Abbott also knows firsthand that simply forcing the closure of this Strathcona encampment will mean introducing the very same issue to a new neighborhood elsewhere.
3: We moved the um, camp out of Oppenheimer Park, Um, it moved down to the waterfront and then it moved over to Strathcona, so um, moving it off off of that location, if there isn't a concrete plan in place that provides um, housing and support for the folks who live there, then it will just um, become a problem in a different neighborhood for a different set of people. So um, we can't keep, it's unfair uh, to the city, it's unfair to the people in the camp that they have to bounce around every time somebody decides that they don't want this problem in their neighborhood. It's not going to go away. Um, It will just surface somewhere else. And then there'll be another group of people threatening not to pay taxes or who are very unhappy. So um, we need a a solid plan um, that takes into consideration the vulnerabilities and the right to housing for the people who are counting.
0: And while an increased police presence can help the peace of mind for the residents there, Abbott believes that it can also send the wrong message entirely.
3: I um, Absolutely. Um, and it also suggests to people that, um, that they have something to be fearful of. Sending the police in, um, requiring people to move without uh, a long-term solution in place, just creates more uncertainty and negatively impacts um, everyone, including uh, neighborhood residents and the people in the park.
0: Although these aren't easy discussions to have, she does say that it can help shine a light on some of these core issues that impact really everyone.
3: I mean, these conversations are important conversations. Like I said, they're you know, real people with um, real communities and families. Uh, we need to have um, more than compassion. We need to support the right right for housing, and and anything that gets us focused on that matters.
2: What an important conversation that is to have, John. Thank you for uh, putting that together with Janice, because it's interesting to to look at this from a perspective. Obviously, we're hearing from the residents of Strathcona wanting to take back their park, wanting to have the access, wanting their children to feel safe, wanting residents to feel safe, mm-hmm. and yet. When Janice said, you know, the the problem at the park and then she said I want to take that back cuz they're not problem they're people. That is right. really a poignant moment in this. Absolutely,
0: like- because uh, it, it's easy to just sort of glance over and you say, "Wow, well, you know, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want this as as she was saying a problem, but it's not that. It is people that are dealing with issues and If you don't tackle the core issues that are underlying uh, sort of everything here, then you're just going to have a Band-Aid solution, which isn't really a fix. You're just moving and then shipping the issue somewhere else, as we saw with Oppenheimer, as we saw with Crab Park. So the true solution is, I, I think Janice is up to something here, with housing and making sure the resources are available to those that desperately need it.
2: Indeed, and shining a light on it on a regular basis is important. So thank you for doing that, John.
0: You got it. Thanks, Jody.
2: Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And this next conversation is already heating up on Twitter. Our producer today is Alan Regan, and he threw out there the link to the story that's sort of the jumping off point here that questions whether dog owners should be legally required to take their dogs out twice a day for a minimum one hour of walk time. Uh, In Germany, that is now legally required if you want to be a dog owner, you have to do this. And and what people are saying on Twitter about this, bringing up some really valid points as to why not, why that should not be law here. And yet, how many of us who are dog owners and dog lovers and responsible who know that a, a good dog and a well-behaved dog is most often a tired dog, one who has gotten plenty of exercise, obviously depending on the breed, but for the most part. Uh, so wanting to talk this through, uh, I'm bringing in, uh, Rebecca Breder, who is an animal rights lawyer at Bredder Law. And, uh, Rebecca I know you are a passionate dog (laughs) lover as am I and you know I I feel legitimate guilt I could probably count on one hand how many times a year my dogs don't get out for at least an hour so anybody pushing back on this is it 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 tweaks for me because I'm thinking well what are you doing with your dog if you're not taking them outside (laughs) there that that's what it's about right so give me what you your thoughts were when when looking at what is happening in Germany I thought, and I
4: still think, it's fantastic, it's absolutely fantastic that they're mandating that people who have dogs have to give them a minimum of one hour of exercise a day with at least two, day, uh, two walks a day, and whether that's exercise in the yard or outside. And I think, yeah, I mean, we're all guilty of not exercising our dogs every once in a while. The problem is if it's a consistent pattern. And then the dog's welfare is compromised to the point that it's just not healthy or good for the dog and the dog is deteriorating. From what I understand, and I didn't see the details of the law or the regulations aren't out yet. Um, the whole point of it is to ensure the dog's welfare, and and that's what's key. So it's not to like punish good dog owners and good dog guardians who are overall taking good care of their dogs. It's to ensure that people who are kind of thinking of getting a dog because they think it's cool to have a dog or they've always wanted a dog um, to send the message that. If you want a dog, it's serious business. It's not like, I think the agricultural minister in, in Germany said something like pets aren't fluff. I loved seeing that. It's just, that's exactly the message that we want people to have is that pets are, yeah, okay, we know technically they're property, but actually in Canada, courts are starting to recognize that they're a special type of property. Anyway, that's a conversation for another day. But the point is, is that we have to be treating our companion animals, not just by minimum standards, we want them to thrive and that means exactly. not just giving a bowl of water out you know and and a dish of kibble we want them to be happy
2: truly yeah happy. they need to be they need to be treated like members of the family to be totally. treated properly like pets are not cuddly toys they're not something that you give as gifts they're not presents they're exactly. a responsibility and they're a very long-term responsibility i have two dogs now i just uh, lost my big dog. My big dog, yeah. Fenway lived to almost 16 and had oh the best gosh. life. I believe that he yeah. had the healthy, great life that he did. Never ill and did not even need to be put down. He died in my arms. If you can believe oh, it uh, with no illness. Yes. I know it was so, yes. but it was so yes. awesome because I know that that dog lived that life because he got exercised every single day so pushing back on exercising a dog every day for me is it's a difficult one for me to consume and people say well you know my dog's different or you know different size dogs different needs for different dogs but one hour we're not saying you have to run them for an hour a day they just need to be outdoors they need to have more than the restrictions of your yard and certainly I've known people that get dogs decide they're too much trouble and tie them up to a post or Uh leave them in the yard whatever it is it makes me Absolutely crazy. So, live I know talk exactly.
4: About, yeah. And and so, this law in Germany—that's the other thing that they that they want to tackle—is that it, it'll prohibit on a national level, although the states will have to enforce it. Um, they'll prohibit people from tying up their dogs for long periods of time. And exactly. Thank I goodness. mean, it's just the whole point of this is that we have to be treating our dogs. More than just with a bowl of water out and, and, and kibble, they really need to be given the proper care. And so what, one of the comments I just want to comment on, because I, I saw yeah, this on ahead. social media and I've seen it before, which is that, well, what about like disabled people who can't walk mm-hmm. their... Their dogs, right? Well, generally speaking, the service dogs, uh, disabled people who have service dogs, do exercise their dogs um, more than an hour. They get they get that exercise. But and I appreciate that this may be controversial. What I'm about to say, but I wholeheartedly believe it, which is that uh, if regardless of who the person is or what their ability is, if the dog that they are about to adopt or get cannot get the exercise that that particular dog needs and requires, and the needs are different, like you said, according to size and breed and all that, but if they cannot provide the care, and which includes exercise, that that particular dog needs, then that person should not get that dog, period, because a dog should never suffer no matter what.
2: That's my I'm going to let that breathe because I think that I think that is a very salient point. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. And it appears that you would like to talk about the idea of making it mandatory that you walk your dog an hour each and every day, legally speaking. That's happening in Germany and the uh, uprising there is quite something. People debating uh, different dogs need different amounts of exercise, age, breed, abilities all coming into play. Uh, what is being thrown down in Germany is that dog owners sh- it should be made to take their dogs out twice a day for a minimum of one hour total uh, to ensure that the dog gets enough exercise. Uh, 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Rebecca Bredder is with us, uh, animal rights lawyer at Bredder Law, uh, to take your calls and and let's let's talk this through. What do you think? Let's start. The phone board's absolutely lighting up here. Brian in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thank you. I'm, I'm a dog owner and I have a French bulldog that doesn't walk at all, so this is a problem. Yeah. But I'm calling mm-hmm. because, Um, I feel it's ironic that people can have children and they don't have to be exercised once a day and they can just be blobs on the couch and that's totally fine. So I think it's not a good emphasis just to take care of dogs.
2: Okay, fair enough. Misguided. Uh, Brian says misguided to put this on dogs when kids can just be lump on a log uh, playing video games all day. I just finished that sentence for him because I'm trying to kick my kid outside constantly. (laughs) Um, And I think it is our responsibility to, to know what is required right Rebecca I think we know who we're speaking of here it's not the responsible dog owner when Brian says I have dogs and he has a pug and and Mm -hmm. the person with the bulldog or the pug with a with a heart condition obviously you're not dragging that dog around for hours on end it's about the dogs who are are in stress and distress mode perpetually because they're not getting the exercise that they require
4: Yes, and let's just be clear. And I often get this. You know, whenever there's a conversation about a new law that uh, that's being debated about protecting animals, and people very often bring up a similar uh, comment or or argument about, well, what about the kids? What about you know something else about humans? There are much more important issues to be dealing with people. But you know what? This law is about animals. It's not about people. We need animal. We need laws that protect animals more. And like you said, Jody. This is really about just ensuring the welfare of dogs generally. It's not like, just use common sense, and and common sense will be used. This is not about the dog who just had surgery and needs like maybe even months to recover and can't go on an hour-long walk every day. It's about the dog owners who just got a dog. They're not giving the dog what he or she needs, and that the dog owners know that they may be penalized if they don't take proper care of their dogs. That's what it's about.
2: That's what it's about. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. Phone lines, as I mentioned, lit up. Let's get to more calls here. Brenda in Maple Ridge, welcome to the show.
5: Hi. Uh, Thanks for letting me come on. I am a dog lover. I have loved dogs and had dogs my whole life. And I don't believe if you can't look after your dog, you shouldn't have one. But I cannot help but consider the hypocrisy of our society in the way we treat our cows, pigs, and chickens. They're all mammals. They all experience pain and suffering. So I'm on board for treating dogs properly, but how
2: can we possibly ignore other mammals? Up. I get oh, it. I, I get it, Brenda. You know what? That's a very broad discussion. Love We're kind of honing it, honing it right in, right here, just to <laughs> the dogs today, because that is there's so much validity to that argument on mm-hmm. how animals are treated. Uh, for those who believe that that uh, that veganism is the only way, or those who feel responsible, farming is a big key to this, or others who are like, well, just leave it the way it is. It's always it's not broken, don't fix it. So let's let's push that just to the side, if we may, and continue on with the dog conversation specific to this perhaps being a law that might be embraced here in canada what is happening in germany the requirement to exercise your pooch on the daily as a rule troy in vancouver welcome to the show
6: thank you jody sorry i'm just gonna
1: bring it back one step when you were talking about your dog a 16 year old big dog with no health problems and you never told us what of dog did you have he
2: was a total mutt. I got the DNA done on him, and he was a, a border collie, shepherd, spaniel, corgi cross. <laughs> he was a really okay. wild looking mutt, and he was he was a big dog. He was about he was about fifty six pounds in general, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was like a, a kind of a. Yeah, like a medium-sized dog, I guess. Almost a big dog. Yeah. I called him a big dog. But, yeah. Yeah. So And now okay, I have a Yorkie and a, a Jack Russell Terrier. So, yeah. 120. Wow.
0: 120. A Mastiff, if you can believe it. Oh but, yeah, Lord, 120. I so, anyways, yeah, God love them.
1: So, thank you for answering that. And I'll let you get back to
0: the more important stuff.
2: <laughs> oh, no problem. I'm happy to talk about Fenway any I can. He was also a therapy dog. He would go into care homes. He just was like that. He would go and sit next to people as long as they rubbed him between the ears. He was a happy dog. Yeah. Never shook a paw because that pulls out the IVs, you know, if you're training your dogs. Uh, Greg and Langley, you're up next. Welcome to the show. Hey there. Um,
6: hey. So a question for you with your three dogs. What if I was to say to you that I think that's absolutely irresponsible to have that many dogs, and I think the government should regulate you to one or two? Now that's really none of my business how many dogs that you have. But if actually, I, there
2: is a regulation the, as to how many dogs I can have. I'm not allowed to have four.
6: Okay, so and that, is that legal, or is that your where you live?
2: It's a bylaw. And it it, it is a right.
6: bylaw,
4: yeah, yeah. and it differs per city. It's yes. not a provincial law. It differs per city. Every city. Uh, well, not every city has a law about how many dogs you can have. Some cities do. And those that do have different have different limits. But that's and a we good saw point. that with like, dog
2: walking. Right, Rebecca? We saw that with dog walkers. Like all of a sudden they yes. had to be regulated. They could only have so many dogs at a time. They all had yeah. they had to wear vests.
4: Yeah, yeah. But you know what, it, it it's not and don't get me started on, on like the limit of dogs because I think as long as a person is responsible for the number of dogs that they have, they should yeah. have as many dogs as they can. Someone who lives on like a ten acre property, if they could right. take care properly, they have the resources and the manpower to take care of like five, six, ten dogs then yeah, they should. But hoarding is definitely a concern, which is so not what <laughs> what you are.
2: Yeah, no, no. No, but I think that's a fair dogs. question. When I, when I do talk about having a num- a numerous dogs, uh, it's a fair question. And I, I take that question. I take my dogs extraordinarily seriously. Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate being asked about them because I think it's an education when people learn that I put them first. I would yeah. rather stay home and and eat uh, you know uh, luckily i have an enclosed little patio that they're safe in so hanging out with the dogs instead of heading out with friends to another location because you know what exactly. i chose to have dogs and i'm not going to leave them here by themselves exactly chris and and coquitlam, just, yeah. sorry go ahead go. Go no, ahead. No, no, i just
4: wanted to say why is it that people raise eyebrows when people say they have three dogs and four cats yet they do not raise any eyebrows when people say they have four or five kids
2: just saying mm, fair enough just saying chris and coquitlam welcome to the program chris
6: Oh hey, how are you? Good you oh I'm pretty good uh, yeah, I listen to you all the time. oh, thank you, yeah, um, but yeah, no, I'm just thinking it just seems like another way for uh you know, and obviously it's bad if it's kind of heartbreaking when somebody doesn't isn't responsible for right. taking care of their dog, but uh. How 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 would the government keep track of uh, well, you know everybody? Like, are they going to keep track of how many times I walk my dog?
2: Mm-hmm. But do you walk do you walk your dog every day?
6: Actually, I can't have a dog anymore because our our oh. kid is allergic. So,
2: oh, that sucks.
6: Oh, it sucks oh for gosh. him too because he just loves dogs, and and when he sees my mom's dog. He just hugs Wanting. the dog anyway, and then he breaks out in hives. <laughs>
2: so. Oh, dude, I'm feeling your pain. But you know what? I'll tell you a quick, quick story. I've only got a minute here, but I will tell you a quick personal story. When I had only one dog, I had no plans on getting a second dog. It was my first week working at Breakfast Television. It was in uh, it was in October of 2011. One of the first things that happens was a little dog rescue. A uh, Halloween fashion show, and walks down. Walks this little Yorkie cross dressed as a beer can. Literally looked up at me and said, "Hi, mom." And the backstory on yeah, I ended up taking him home. I had no business taking on a second dog at that moment. And it, his backstory was, his name was Baxter, and his backstory was that the the person who had had him since he was a puppy had had him for five years, gave birth to a child who was born allergic. She had to give him up, and. That dog has has given so much joy to our family because of what that family had to give up. And that's responsible dog ownership. That is Mm -hmm. the right thing. You know, you know, you don't keep the dog outside because your kid's allergic. You get that dog a better home because your kid's allergic. And that's what I think we're talking about here. Right.
4: Yes, exactly. I just adopted a six-year-old little guy after my master of great Dean uh, died last year. And he's oh. uh, the family, same thing. Family, had kids, couldn't, didn't have enough time for him. And he is the
2: best dog ever, I have to say. just They find us, don't they, Rebecca? Thank uh, you for doing totally this. I appreciate do. this chat. You've made my heart bigger today. I really do appreciate our chat. Thank, Thank you.
5: you. My mother taught me that service to others gives life purpose and meaning. And oh, how I wish she were here tonight, but I know she's looking down on me from above. I keep thinking about that 25-year-old Indian woman, all of five feet tall, who gave birth to me at Kaiser Hospital in Oakland, California. On that day, she probably could have never imagined that I would be standing before you now and speaking these words. I accept your nomination for Vice President of the United States of America.
2: That happened last night at the Democratic National Convention. It still gives me goosebumps. I've heard it numerous times. And it's interesting when we play it, when we talk about it, when we speak to the pride for women on a global scale, seeing a woman of color for the very first time nominated uh, for the office of vice president of the United States. It is fascinating to me and I can see them pinging right now into my inbox. How many angry men tell me to stop talking about it? No, that's not how this is going to go. It's interesting also on the uh, subject matter of Christia Freeland being appointed the first federal finance minister in Canada and how many people were so quick, mostly men I'm going to say on social media questioning her resume. And I'm thinking, come on, the the double standard is just wild. And yet, not wanting to fight that way, we're going to go the other way. We're going to bring in a very successful, powerful, established, strong woman who you've heard here on the program before to talk this through with me, Shachi Curl, the executive director of the Angus Reed Institute. Oh, and seriously, though, it's just, we got to talk about it in a way that celebrates it. Well, thank you. But
5: yeah. um look, uh as a as a woman of color, particularly as a South Asian woman of a as a woman of Indian descent, uh, when Kamala Harris talked about her five foot mother giving birth and and never imagining the heights to which her daughter would soar, I certainly think of my own mummy, who uh, yeah. gave <laughs> birth to me at Saint Paul's Hospital, all five foot four of her and um and the pride that moms feel uh you know regardless of gender or color uh when they're when their kids do well, but also just um the extra barriers that that people of color women of color low income women women uh, with low educational attainment uh do face, and when we see odds overcome uh due to societal barriers um it's it's uh it's a remarkable thing, and so for me, yeah, it's a moment of pride, but you know, I, I'll tell you, Jody, that the first time I really felt inspired was as a very, very little girl uh, in 1984, and it was Geraldine Ferraro, and yeah. it didn't matter if she was a woman of color or where she was from or if her hair was long or short or if she was white or black. That was the moment my mom and my big sister pulled me aside and said, look at that. Look at what girls can do. Look at what women can do. So it's the continuation. It's wonderful because it, it becomes the normalization of these things. I love that I didn't really blink when, when uh, Ms. Harris was, was tipped to be vice presidential nominee. I did not blink at all when Krista Freeland was, was uh, appointed finance minister. Who else was going to do it? She's the most exactly. qualified person on exactly. that cabinet. Which we can talk about the weak bench strength
2: of the Trudeau government another time.
6: <laughs>
5: totally. But, but really, yeah.
2: she was the only person to go to. Yeah, we would have been shocked had anyone else been put there. But it's the it's the narrative, I guess, that I wanted to get past here. And I love the way you're coming at it. The narrative of the it's checking a box, it's checking a diversity box, you know, that's what was promised therefore, that's what, what happened. He had to pick somebody and so it's her. Or, you know, no. On on two massive levels, the qualifications behind these two historic postings that should be normalized, uh, it, it just really comes into play now. And I think I thought just deserved as simply talking it through that, so that if somebody listening was thinking that they're not enough, not there enough, could not try hard enough of just being enough as a human being to do it because of those barriers you mentioned, maybe they would look past it and say, "Wait a minute." I can do you that. know
3: symbols
5: jody are really really powerful and really important especially to young people especially mm-hmm. especially to kids so i remember this was before my eyesight you know just went downhill and it, and it didn't end up happening i i wanted to be a pilot i wanted to be an air cadet when i was little
0: really? uh, after
5: a while they're like you can't fly if you don't have perfect vision so that was the end of that this was before laser eye surgery was commonplace mm-hmm. uh but i remember saying to my dad i must have been three, two, three going, well, girls can't do that. He went out and got me like a, a Canadian forces recruiting poster with a, with a female helicopter pilot and stuck that in my room. I love Temples it. And optics are so no. important, but here's what else is important. It's not just about the finance ministers and, and the presidential nominees. It's about women going for it at work in the boardroom, uh, in the classroom, and feeling like enough in their day-to-day lives because that's really what normalizes it. When I walk into a boardroom or sit on a corporate board and I'm no longer the only woman that looks like me around a table of 16 or 15, that's the day I say, okay, we're getting it done. So, yes, the optics and the high-profile appointments, they're wonderful. But really, the backfilling that we need to do in everyday society around equal pay, look at what COVID has done to to the participation of women in the Canadian workforce. I read a stat that says something like, you know, we've given up all the gains that women have made in terms of workforce participation over the last 30 years because of the coronavirus. Those are also the things we can't lose sight
2: of. Here, here, my friend. Thank you very much for doing this. That is exactly, precisely what I was hoping to talk through. And uh, I love that you wanted to be an air cadet, and that your dad got you those things. Because when I told my mom I want to be a sportscaster on TV, she said, "Go for it." That's right, absolutely. And here We've been we are. Blessed by strong parents. Thank you, sister.